Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sean Higgins and Sage Miller take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Morgan Lyon Cotty, Associate Director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics, filling in for Jason Perry. Covering the week, we have Taylor Morgan, partner with Morgan and May Public Affairs, Marjorie Cortez, reporter with the Deseret News, and Glenn Mills, former political reporter. So there's no lack of news or dramatics <laughs> or anything this week. A few things week. happening during the week. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> National level and at the state level. And of course, the biggest news is that for the first time in our nation's history, the Speaker of the House is vacated. Congress voted, very close vote, 216 to 210. Uh, none of Utah's delegation voted in favor of this, however, made closer by the fact that Congressman Stewart's office is vacant. But Glenn, I want to st- start with you here. I want to get your general take on this, what this means for our nation, what this means for our state. Wow, what an unprecedented event we watched unfold during the week. We've gotten to the point where the Real Housewives series has nothing on Congress anymore. As you take a look at how that went down, next level drama playing out in the nation's capital, there's really one point I want to start off with on this whole thing, and that is the deep irony of what took place. Many may call it hypocrisy, and that is the simple fact that Representative Matt Gates and his crew wanted to oust Speaker McCarthy because he chose to govern and work with Democrats to avoid a shutdown. Now, for them to be successful to get McCarthy out, wait for it, they had to work with all the Democrats in the House to make that happen. Just really, as you take a look at that, just an incredible irony. Yeah. I'll just add that I want to celebrate this dysfunction a little bit. We know that our founding fathers set up the checks and balances among the branches, but also within the branches. Uh, Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And certainly, uh, we would like Congress to work, but I also appreciate some dysfunction in D.C. Glenn, you're right. The Democrats deserve some blame in this, but ultimately, this came down to Speaker Kevin McCarthy being a very poor leader. After working with the Democrats, he could not win their support to keep his seat. And and Marjorie, I want to get your take on this, because Congressman John Curtis said something about the dysfunction and about what's going on with Democrats and Republicans. He said, Congress set a new low today, Republicans turning on Republicans and Democrats standing around with lighter fluid and matches. No one's interest was served with the removal of Kevin McCarthy. I stand ready to work with any reasonable member of Congress to put this back together again and work on the real problems of our day. What's the congressman saying here? Well, I think he's referring to just this fatigue we all have with Congress. Get something done, for crying out loud. And there's all this gamesmanship going on, and then now the speaker's been ousted. And meanwhile, there's still pressing problems in our country that need to be addressed, like immigration and making sure that the most vulnerable people in our country, that their needs are taken care of. And I, I think a lot of Americans are just like, 
you know, get her done. <laughs> Glenn? Well, uh, Representative Moore from our congressional delegation also had a very strong statement coming out against this action. And he basically said, uh, paraphrasing here, this had nothing to do with Speaker McCarthy and everything to do with Representative Gates' insatiable need for attention. And this is something that we're, we're hearing more commentary about, that there's less legislating, there's more social media, uh, there's even less legislative staff and more comms staff on these congressional staffers. Um, Taylor, as someone who's worked in politics and policy, what is, and also someone who is a communications person, how does the general public read all of this? Uh, well, I think the public is frustrated with Congress, and rightly so. Uh, we also saw during the vote to vacate the speakership, we saw a flurry of political fundraising, text messages and emails. Uh, Republicans, particularly in their campaigns and their communications teams, have ramped up political fundraising on this behavior in Congress to a level that is unprecedented. Certainly, this is nothing more than a campaign stunt. It's, it's political theater, and Americans are growing tired of it. But to my previous point, I think some dysfunction is healthy, but probably not to this degree. Yeah. One other thing that's important to point out here is that this is a consequence of what you have when one party has such a small majority in the House of Representatives. What that allows for is for the fringe or the more extreme members of that party to take control of a situation exactly like we saw play out in this one. Yeah. And we saw that with the speaker vote as well. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. There was a, a time over the last few days when many thought Donald Trump would step in and be elected as the next Speaker of the House. You don't have to be in Congress to be the Speaker, technically, constitutionally. That would have been fun. Yeah, that is looking <laughs> unlikely at this point, but wouldn't that have been the ultimate be careful what you wish for moment for the Democrats in that situation. Yeah. Taylor, I want to get your take also on something that former Governor Herbert said this week. Your career, you've worked in nonpartisan spaces, bipartisan spaces. Um, even as a Republican campaigner and consultant, you work with Democrats. And he said, we used to define those on the other side of the aisle as the loyal opposition. Today, they are more often referred to and treated as the disloyal enemy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we tend to take politics far too personally. We need to be able to disagree and disagree, you know, passionately on the issues, on policies, but then walk away from the policy debate and still be positive and friendly and be humans and treat each other with respect. Politics has become far too divisive in an ugly personal way. And that was never the intention of this process. Yeah. And Marjorie, what are you seeing with your reporting over the years? How is this affecting our state? Well, I, I was thinking back to when Ronald Reagan was president and he and Tip O'Neill would meet at the end of the day and have a cocktail and talk about what, what had happened that day. And there was this collegiality that we don't see now, which, which I think is really tragic because, you know, everyone has their political agendas and and the, trying to do the best to represent the people they're representing but at the end of the day things have to get done and I, I think that's what is most Americans struggle with it's just you know here here's this Republican president and Democratic leader who, who could you know put put down the weapons at the end of the day and, and just chat and that's really what we're missing now is opportunities yeah. just to communicate is, is people. Well, can I add something to that? I think that's such a great point. We see in Congress, when we talk about statesmanship, uh, we think Mitch McConnell. 
we think some of the more senior members of Congress, certainly Mitt Romney, I, I have to wonder if Nancy Pelosi was minority leader instead of Hakeem Jeffries, would this have happened? Would the Democrats all have voted as a block uh, to, to vacate Kevin McCarthy as speaker? I feel like this younger generation maybe needs to learn some statesmanship. Well, I remember Orrin Hatch, you know, working with Teddy Kennedy mm -hmm. to pass I was the children's up. health mm -hmm. insurance plan or program. And Th those kinds of bipartisan efforts were possible because people could meet each other as human beings. Yeah. And one thing that uh, is good to remember about all of this is that the Speaker of the House is not just um, a position um, of power. Well, it's not just a position that gets a microphone. It is actually an actual constitutional position. Yeah. It's second in line to the presidency, just behind the vice president. There's a lot of business to get done. Marjorie, you already mentioned immigration. But we also have um, another budget showdown coming up. Uh, Congress voted to keep uh, government running. They did go over their deadline by a couple of days, but government is currently open. Glenn, can you just, as we start talking about the budget shutdown, still tell us a little bit about this dynamic of what it means that they're going to be electing a new speaker and also have less than 40 days to pass a new yeah. budget? Well, one, I wonder if they're going to be effective in electing a new speaker. We saw how it all played out the first time. Is that going to happen again? Will they even be able to do that? Will it sit vacant for months? At this point, we really don't know how that will play out. And as you mentioned, it's a very important position as we get into this, because essentially what they did is they bought themselves some time. And I believe it's uh, November 17th is the new deadline to come to yes. an agreement. So uh, we've seen our own Senator, Mike Lee, talk about how there's no viable plan being talked about in the Senate right now. Uh, so a lot of this is really up in the air, and we're wondering what's going to happen when that deadline comes around again in just a couple of weeks. Yeah. And with Senator Lee, he's, he's made comments. Last week, he tweeted out that we needed a 15-day government shutdown to stop the spread of government spending. Uh, Marjorie, I'd love to hear your take. Is there an appetite from Utahns to have a short government spending to try to get um, deeper into these negotiations, perhaps for the conservatives, and to curtail some of that government spending? Well, Utahns are fiscal, fiscally responsible people. They, they want Congress to spend that tax dollar they're sending them. They want them to do good, good things with that. Um, but if we, this means another government shutdown, I think Utahns are, you know, look at our congressional district. They, they, they don't want that. Yeah. They, they, yeah, and Glenn, I know you've done reporting on yeah. this, especially with those IRS mm -hmm. employees. And, yeah, at times we've had shutdowns. I have met with IRS employees. You know, it's a huge employer in Ogden. We have a lot of uh, federal workers in our state, and these are people in many instances that are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they really depend on that money coming in, and when it doesn't, it has real-life consequences on them. Uh, so I've, I've had an opportunity to go see how it impacts them, and it really is frustrating for them. It's something they really worry about, and it impacts their life, especially when you're talking about it coming up potentially up against the holidays this year. It adds that additional stress. And Marjorie, who are, I know you've spoken in the past about that vulnerability spectrum, that there are those who really rely on some of these government programs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we have kind of this vulnerability spectrum where children are highly vulnerable 
uh, infants, people with very low incomes, children who, who attend Title I schools. And then we have this on the other end when people are seniors or veterans or people with disabilities. Of course, that could be anywhere in the spectrum. But um, when government shuts down, those are the kinds of programs that I, I think we have great concern about, like WIC. And, you know, I, my mom's on Social Security. I'm, I'm pretty sure she's still going to get her check, but we, we worry about that because these are essential services they rely on. Yeah. And Taylor, while we do need to talk about the logistics of a government shutdown, there's also the political ramifications. We have a special election in Utah. We're coming up on a presidential and a Senate election next year. How do voters read this? What are they concerned about? I think voters, typically voters will send the attack dogs to Washington, D.C. We, we tend to elect more moderate uh, you know, folks to lead our, our state government and, and to be in the office of governor, we tend to send maybe more of the attack dogs, like Senator Mike Lee, to Washington, D.C., because we're frustrated with how D.C. works. However, that said, voters in Utah want fiscal discipline, but I, I really think that they're growing so tired of the dis dysfunction in D.C., that will have an impact on the upcoming Senate race. We haven't had an open Senate seat in Utah since 1976. Voters will have a key opportunity to define the representation for Utah and the tone in the United States Senate on behalf of Utah going forward for decades. Yeah. And we should say technically it was an open Senate seat in 2018, but Mitt Romney's name ID was so much That's that right. it didn't yeah. feel fair. like it. <laughs> well, before we get to that, though, uh, in the past, there's really been blame when it comes to government shutdowns. And you can even look at elections to see if it hurt one party or the other. Um, with Republicans, are voters—Glenn, do you think voters are blaming the Republicans in Congress? Are they blaming the Democrats in the Senate? Are they blaming everybody? I haven't seen any polling data on that recently, but I think there's probably blame to go around in this situation. Uh, again, I'll, I'll make note of the very slim majorities in uh, both chambers, and so there's probably a sense of uh, from voters that both parties are not doing what they could to come together and try to make this happen. Yeah. So I want to move on to our upcoming Senate race. As we've mentioned, Mitt Romney has been in this seat for just one term, and he's not running again. Um, and a lot of people were looking at Congressman John Curtis, and there had been rumors, there had been hints. They thought he'd been making he would be making an announcement. But Glenn, this week he said he is not going to run. Were you surprised by this? I was because. I originally heard that he was out and he wasn't going to run. Then I heard, yes, he is going to be in, and then he came out and made it official, no, I'm not. I thought that seat might be tempting to him or attractive to him in the fact that he wouldn't have to run every two years, it would be every six years instead. Uh, there's a lot of sense that maybe you can get more done in the Senate. But I talked to uh, one of his staffers and to try to get a sense of what he was thinking and what played into this decision. And they told me two things. One, he does feel a sense of fulfillment with what he's able to accomplish in the House for his district. And two, a sense of loyalty to the people that have sent him to Congress a couple times over now. He's really loyal to them. He wants to stick with the job that uh, he started. And he does feel like he can be as effective 
in the House. Yeah. If I can add something there, as a campaign strategist, I have to give a ton of credit to Brad Wilson and to his team for freezing out the field in this Senate race. Brad Wilson has far lower name ID statewide than John Curtis would have had as a member of Congress with a district that spans the state. However, Brad Wilson got the key donors. We're talking uh, the Gail Millers. We're talking former Governor Mike Levitt. Uh, we're talking Kim and Carolyn Gardner. The who's who of Utah's political donors all were locked in early by Brad Wilson as endorsers and supporters. And I believe that frees the field and that scared off uh, Congressman John Curtis from challenging him in the race. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he announced in Draper, which I thought was kind of a, maybe a little snub to the mayor, Trent Skaggs, who's running, <laughs> and, and, and not in that he didn't announce in D Davis County where he's from or by the lake. You know, maybe he wanted to be there because it's close to Utah County and there are voters to court there as well. But I, I thought that that was very strategic. As a Draper resident, I have to say that's because Draper is the political power center of Utah. <laughs> also, as a Draper Sorry. resident, I'll have to uh, go ahead and back that statement. Thank you. I, I, I'm from I, Mill Creek. I, yeah. I don't know from where I speak. I, I want to make one more point on that. If you look back uh, over the last several years, the state state legislature has not been a path to Congress. I can name state legislator after state legislator who tried and failed to make that, uh, to, to bridge those two uh, uh, organizations. Brad Wilson, though, you can clearly tell is positioned different than a lot of the people who have tried in the past, though. By uh, because of what you have mentioned, he's raised a lot of money, right. and he has got those big names to come out behind him. Uh, just next week, there's going to be a, a fundraiser held for him, uh, sponsored by uh, Governor Cox, Gail Miller, Scott Anderson, and so he's got a lot of that backing yeah. behind him. And so it's a very different-looking attempt this time around from other previous state lawmakers who have tried to make that jump. Plus, that. he has a lot of personal resources, and that helps too. Yes. Yeah. So with his early announcement, those early resources, with uh, Congressman Curtis not stepping in, are there any other names that we haven't been talking about that we should be talking about? Uh, one I'll throw into the ring I know is considering would be Thomas Wright. He's a successful local businessman, someone who also has the resources uh, personally to, to make a run. He ran for governor in 2020 uh, as well, uh, former Utah GOP chair. And as I mentioned, a successful businessman locally. I haven't heard a lot of talk about that, but I, I do know he is considering. Yeah. We also heard this week through a spokesperson that Josh Romney wouldn't be running. Marjorie, were people expecting him to run? I think no. I mean, that, that was, I, I think there was a lot of chatter about that, but I, I don't know that he was seriously thinking about doing that at this time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, don't in the future. He, I don't know that he ever considered that seriously, okay. but it's just a, it's a good story, a good narrative that people want to, yeah. to jump to. Okay. We love our family stories. Yeah. We do. <laughs> okay, also in 2024, as we all know, we're going to have another presidential election, and we have a new poll coming out with, through the Dan Jones Center at the U of U, at the Hinckley Institute, uh, with the Deseret News, and we are asking voters, what do you think about all of these Republican candidates? And we have seen a really interesting trend over the last year. Last year, Ron DeSantis was leading the field 
polled with about 33 percent, and Donald Trump was in the low 20s. And we have seen a reversal of that in our low, in our latest poll. Donald Trump is at 33 percent, and Ron DeSantis has fallen to 15 percent among Republican uh, Republicans that we polled. Um, Taylor, as a Rep the Republican campaigner here, what's happening with these voters? Well, Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign just has never caught on. We saw, uh, last year, we saw a letter from 100 Republican elected officials throughout Utah specifically calling for Ron DeSantis to run for the presidency. And now, fast forward to this year, very few of them probably would say they would vote for him because his campaign has been such a failure. Ron DeSantis has not found any separation or any traction with voters. Uh, voters don't really know who Ron DeSantis is and why they should vote for him anymore, even though he just won Florida by a landslide, a historic landslide, uh, the Florida governorship. Uh, Nikki Haley, however, appears to have some support here. But really, I think the biggest surprise of these latest numbers is how much support Donald Trump has, again, in Utah, among Utah Republicans. Right. Yeah, Glenn. We've just been saying for a long time, plurality is going to favor the former president. Uh, it, it's just a fact. We're seeing that play out. In that Utah poll, there are still more voters voting against him than voting for him, and there's a huge number of undecideds in that poll as well. Uh, but we know the more people that stay in that race, that is going to benefit the former president. That's why we saw our senator, Senator Romney, come out and make a suggestion or a, a plan. You know, if we get to a certain point, he's trying to encourage a lot of those other candidates to go ahead and drop out and get behind the one that could potentially challenge him uh, the best in a primary. Right, and that was an echo of the speech he gave in 2000. 2016 at the Hinckley Institute, calling on those Republicans to do that as well. Marjorie, are we going to see people try to drop and rally around another candidate? I, I, I'm not sure at this point. I mean, I think part of Trump's juice right now is he's been running for president for three years. I mean, seriously, since, since he lost, um, he hasn't given up. No. Um, I think it's interesting how much traction Nikki Haley's getting, and yeah. I and I think she's performed well in debates. I, I think she has uh, foreign policy experience, which, which is really important in, in this kind of dangerous world we're living in right now. And I, I, I think maybe when push comes to shove, people will want somebody who's more serious and, and wants to govern. Yeah, I well, think I, oh. the well. Let me just say this really quickly. I think the economy is very, very frustrating for voters. Mm -hmm. And I believe the economy is going to really be the key issue in this election. There will be many voters who did not vote for Donald Trump in 2020 because of bad behavior, because of his personal character flaws. I believe many of those voters will plug their nose and vote for former President Trump because of the economy. Yeah, narrative we've heard before. Go I was ahead. just gonna add one other thing. When you talk about this uh, strategy of jumping out of the race and getting behind a candidate who can be more successful. We did see the Democrats figure that out in 2020 uh, within their own ranks. Uh, Bernie Sanders was really doing well in the race. Uh, Joe Biden was struggling to uh, reach him. And we saw uh, Pete Buttigieg and Senator Klobuchar both come together and say, look, we need to get out of this race and back uh, President Biden, and you saw the trajectory of that race change once that happened. An interesting note, I was in the room with Bernie Sanders when he received the call that Buttigieg and Klobuchar were backing out. 
uh, he went white as a ghost. I had to leave the room for a minute. Whiter than normal? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that, that tells you the impact that that had on him. But he knew instantly the impact that that was going to have on him. It was when he did his rally out at the, uh, the state fair and I was interviewing him at a, a hotel. But I had to leave the room for a minute and I was able to come back in and he didn't tell me what had happened, but as soon as I heard the news, I knew that was that moment. Very interesting. Yeah. We'll have to watch and see uh, what these candidates will do. With our last couple of minutes, I want to get to another poll question that we asked. There's so much conversation about the age of these presidential candidates. You just mentioned Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, in the past Hillary Clinton. At any other time, they would have uh, it would have been historic, even them alone as an oldest candidate. So we asked. Uh, Utah voters, do you think there should be a maximum age for elected officials? And this has, of course, been in the news for uh, members of the U.S. Senate as well. And nearly two-thirds of Utahns say yes, they think there should be a maximum age. And about half of those say it should be 70. Marjorie, what are you hearing from voters? What are you seeing in politics with uh, this uh, appearance of frustration uh, over the age of these candidates? Well, I mean, uh I, I, I think there were so many people that respected what Mitt Romney did. You know, let's hand this to a next generation. And I, I personally found it painful to watch Dianne Feinstein come unspooled mm -hmm. in the past few months, because th there does come a time when you have to step aside. But I, I think that power becomes so addictive that mm -hmm. it's really hard to do that. Yeah. And I remember when the Pope stepped out, and, and I kept telling my husband, well, this doesn't happen. The Pope serves for the lifetime. And I remember him saying something like, because that's a very Germanic thing to do, is, is to step aside when you don't feel like you're being productive or, or you can help an organization along. Yeah. It's so difficult, though, because power in Washington, D.C., and in, especially in Congress, is tied directly to seniority. And Utah really benefited from having uh, former senator, the late Senator Orrin Hatch, yep. be in D.C. for so long. He rose to power with that seniority, uh, ultimately was chair of the Finance Committee. He had a lot of pull, and he got a lot of things for Utah in that position. We miss that seniority. Yep. We're going to have to continue this discussion another time. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.